Hi, I'm Rick Steves. I've spent a quarter of my adult life traveling, living out of a tiny suitcase, sleeping in strange beds, and having my cultural furniture constantly rearranged. Just when I think nodding my head up and down means yes, I go to Bulgaria, and it means no. Just when I think the Japanese Ryokan bed and breakfast is freezing cold, I sit on the toilet, and I'm startled by a heated seat. And just when I think our Olympic athletes are doing so great in the medal standings, a Dutch friend explains that, per capita, his country is doing seven times as well as mine. Travel carbonates life. It's accelerated living. It's recess. I need it, and I've got a feeling I'm not alone. Each week at this time, we delve into our fascinating world, interviewing expert travelers and taking calls from our frequent flying listeners. We have an exciting and information-packed hour coming right up as we travel with Rick Steves. It's easily one of the most crowded, polluted, and bewildering cities in the world. But you shouldn't dare miss out on the many charms it offers. We'll find out why Mexico City is one of the truly great cities of our hemisphere with guidebook author Chris Humphrey. And great snorkeling, pre-Columbian wonders, fascinating bird-watching, and exotic sinkholes that you can swim in and see forever, the cenotes. We're talking about the wonders of the Yucatan Peninsula, coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. First, your calls and emails. 877-333-RICK or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Today we've got a lot of travelers on the line, and we're going to go right to Decatur, Georgia, to talk to Kyluck. Thanks for calling. What's where are your travel dreams taking you? My husband and I are traveling to England, Scotland, and Wales, and we have only ten days, but ten full days of travel. And we're flying into London and out of Edinburgh. And my question is, what itinerary would you recommend to? to see the sites, the major sites in the cities, but maximize the time in the countryside, because neither one of us have been to the area. Right. Well, you know, the the two big cities that you'd want to focus on are London and Edinburgh. Right. And then if you've got 10 days, boy, you're going to be on a pretty busy trip. <laughs> I know. So you've got to be realistic about what you can do. I think you're smart going open jaws. You're flying into London and out of Edinburgh. That saves you a whole day of travel. Right. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, and you want to see London? Um, have you been there before? We, we have not. Okay, you got to see London. Yeah, it's just a brutal place to get over jet lag. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so don't don't go to a play that first night. It's a very expensive nap. A hot, warm uh, seat in a theater, listening to some Shakespeare. Boy, that's a that's a forty dollar nap. Right. <laughs> so, but I mean, I would I would do a couple of days in London. Then uh, it sounds like you're kind of uh, aggressive travelers. So remember, when you are in Britain, the shortest distance between any two points is the motorway. You get on that motorway, and it's like um, driving on a super freeway in Germany or or whatever. You can go um, cut, cut across England pretty quickly. You're going to take one long drive to get up to Edinburgh. I would recommend that you have a couple of days in London, and then you pick up a car. And I like to pick up a car at the airport rather than downtown London because. Well, you're just more likely to survive your first day on the road in Britain if you learn in the countryside rather than in the big city, and it takes hours to get out of London anyways sometimes. Okay. And then you'd want to drop your car up in Edinburgh, and that gives you one week with the car to lace together rural sites. From England, I would from London, I would go straight to the Cotswolds. Cotswold okay. villages are just the most... Um, they're, they're so cute, they're almost edible, you know. I mean, it's a, it's a real temptation for a travel writer to use the word quaint. I try to save my use of the word quaint for the Cotswold villages. Very... Um, uh, wealthy in the old days because of the wool industry, and then something happened, and they became very depressed. So depressed they didn't even bother to tear down the buildings and build them new. And then all of a sudden, in the 20th century, these are rediscovered as like impossibly cute. And today they're popular with tourists and uh, wealthy local people, and so on. So you want to check that out. And then if you're interested in Wales, the best part of Wales is the north of Wales. Okay. More castles per square mile there than anywhere else I've seen anywhere in Europe. Wow. And, and when you look at these castles in northern Wales, remember they are. You'd think they were Welsh castles, but no, they are English castles put there um, when the English were trying to subdue those feisty Welsh people, you see. So they were little footholds of English rule, and they had garrison towns around the castles, generally um, uh, stocked from the sea and uh, surrounded by angry Welsh people. 
So you could probably think of it kind of like an American military base in Iraq, I guess. Uh, that way, little little green zones, you know, that they right. would have uh, in the Middle Ages. And today, these are fascinating sites. And I would be sure to have a couple of days in North Wales. And then if you want beautiful countryside between there and Edinburgh, I'd make a beeline for the Northern Lakes District. Make the town of Keswick your home base. Okay. The Lakes District is just the most romantic place in Britain as far as nature lovers go, okay? And um, all the English, London people pretty much crowd the Southern Lakes District. I go a little farther up to the Northern Lakes District, Keswick. There's actually a valley next to Keswick called Newlands Valley, and if you've got a car, that's a place to really remember Newlands Valley. Okay. And then after that, you'll drive up to Edinburgh with a stop on Hadrian's Wall. And Hadrian's Wall is a very evocative way to get the countryside of England. You can walk, actually walk along the wall. And when you walk on Hadrian's Wall, just imagine 2,000 years ago, the Romans got as far north as there, and they decided, oh, boy, that's enough. Let's call it an empire. And they built a wall all across England. They fortified it with a a castle every mile apart, exactly a mile apart. You've got a castle. And the wall originally was wide enough to have chariots race along the top so they could re-fortify different zones depending on where the barbarians from the north of that line were, um, were attacking. So a little background, and that will make that little walk in the countryside more evocative. And then you drive into Edinburgh, and I would, I would drive at night just because you got limited time, and you know have a day on the wall, and then at five o'clock or six o'clock, get in the car, have a picnic dinner as you drive, and you'll get to Edinburgh okay. by ten o'clock, and and give yourself a couple of nights in Edinburgh and two days before you fly home. Perfect. So you'd skip the Highlands and in Scotland because there's basically no time, right? <laughs> I, I was, I, I think you're going at a at a frantic pace as it is. Right. I think you should call in well. You should call, get over there and call in well. You're going to be home a few days later than what you thought. Okay. Okay, but uh, 10 days you can do it. You're going to have to be well organized, and uh, let us know how it goes. Okay, bye-bye. Ciao. And we got Bob in Ann Arbor, Michigan. How's it going? Well, I, I'm really, my wife and I travel uh, just about every year to Europe, and uh, my, my biggest question is when is really a, a good time to hit uh, Europe, France, Germany, and, and England as well, when all of Europe is not on vacation, number one, and also when we can have, you know, predictably, good good weather. Right. Well, first of all, there is a sort of a bit of bad wisdom going around among travelers that you don't want to go to Europe in August because everybody's on vacation. And I don't find that really very good advice. They say, oh, everything's closed down, they're all on vacation. Well, you can't get a dentist or you, you can't get a piano tuner, because they're going to be on vacation. But everything from a tourism point of view is going to be wide open and, and very busy you know, when people are on vacation. Mm-hmm. A city like Paris, um, in, you know, in a lot of ways it's dead because half the population's down on the coast of Del- or the French Riviera. But in a lot of ways it's more relaxed and it's easy to find a place to park and uh, hotels are cheaper and so on. And the, and the city is, uh, is just in this l- sort of low metabolism sort of gear. Um, I would say what you want to watch is the beach destinations in the summer, in July and August, because uh, Europeans go on vacation for a fortnight. That's two weeks. And it's sort of like the 1st and the 15th. I don't know exactly, but Europeans will know this. You don't want to be on the freeway heading south on the 1st or the 15th because everybody is. It's the changing of the guard for the beaches there, right? Mm -hmm. And that can be really a fiasco in your travel plans. So um, the, the the vacation schedule for the Europeans, they tend to do the same thing on the same day, and they tend to be able to lay on the beaches and enjoy themselves incredibly congested and and, and not even worry about how crowded they are. They just, they're there to lay on the beach and, and get a break from the city, and that's what they do, and they just stay there for two weeks. They just can't imagine the quick American kind of tour. And that would be the time to be in Paris and then... In, in the bigger cities when they're all on the beach. I think so. And if you're looking for Mediterranean ambience, boy, you know, Americans are infatuated or are just fascinated by old stuff, and Europeans live in old stuff. They could care less about the old stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So I let them have the beach, and I stop one hour short of the beach in the hill towns yeah. where you find the traditional cultures and none of the intensity of the beach. Uh, and it's kind of like, let them have what they really like, and we'll take what we really like, and it's a nice arrangement uh, if you're traveling in peak time, in summer, during summer vacation time, July and August. Mm-hmm. Uh, Europe is very, very densely populated, and uh, these people, they do things to a great extent in in concert, all together. Um, I, my feeling is Americans will find a better value for fun in the sun on the west coast of Mexico or Cancun or something like that. And if you're looking for... Uh, fun in the sun in Europe, it's not its not the same value as you'd find in some of the more um, common Western Hemisphere places that way. I understand. 
Okay, great. Now, now you're thinking about uh, weather versus crowds and so on for England and France? Correct. You know, England, you've got big concerns about weather, and I'd say no concerns about crowds. Don't worry about the, the crowds in England. I would In England, the main thing is there's, remember, there's no bad weather, just uh, inappropriate clothing. Okay, so you're going to be out there rain or shine. And for my TV filming experience, it's very stressful to try to be filming in England because the weather's not reliable. But if we packed it in every time it clouded up, we'd never get anything done. So we're out there in the weather, and it changes five or six times a day, it seems like. I see. So okay. just be willing to be out there and uh, have a great time. Thank you. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Okay, bye now. Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Call me at 877-333-RICK or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. We got uh, Laura on the line in Palsbo, Washington. Hi, Rick. Thanks for waiting and thanks for your call. You bet. How are you doing? Um, I'm going to be flying to England and I'm going to meet up with my sister-in-law who is British. And uh, she has two homes, one in France and one in Greece. She's made arrangements that we're going to go stay in both of those places it's been six years since I've been to Europe, and in that span of time, my walking is now sometimes aided with a stick. Uh-huh. Not always, however. But um, with all the new flight regulations, right. what do I do to be able to travel with my walking stick? I, I'm, do you know for a fact you cannot take a walking stick on a plane? I don't know for a fact, but... I'm thinking it's a lethal weapon, I well, suppose. I, uh, it's, a, it's not pointed. It's not pointed, right. You wouldn't, I, I couldn't take my sword that I bought in Spain or my mace that I bought back home because it was a medieval weapon, you know. But I, I, I don't know. I, I would talk to your travel agent. Travel agents are – this is why I use a travel agent instead of the website. You know, I, my travel agent figures this stuff out for me, and they would – I would think at worst you would have to – you would have to leave it at the front, and they would take it from you, and they'd give it back to you when the flight's over. Aha! You know, that's what I would I would assume. Unless you, you know, one thing that people really enjoy doing is going over to Europe and buying a walking stick. Actually, they go to nurseries. They go to um, garden shops, and they have these um, big sticks that they use to help with their plants grow tall or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, they buy them there, and it's a fun little souvenir. I've had people write me emails, say they get them... Uh, you know, tailored to their needs and so on, and that's their fun little souvenir. And then they buy stock nagels. Do you know what a stock nagel is? No. The little medallions you uh, tack on to your walking oh, yeah. stick as you do the hike through this town. You buy a stock nagel and you put it on there. It makes a nice souvenir. Yeah. Really, I, I think there's all of these stories around that you can't get your fingernail clippers onto the plane and so yeah. on. There's this charade of super security that sometimes goes over the top. And I've I've taken... Um, you know, uh, little things that are sharp that they're just buried in my bag. And if they find them, good, they can, t- they can keep them. But uh, I've always found that you just get on with that. Um, you know, they're, they're reasonable. Okay. Good luck with your trip. Great. Thank you. Thanks for your call. Mm-hmm. Bye now. Bye. We'll find out why Mexico City is one of the truly great cities of our hemisphere. Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves. Teithia, ever Rick Steves. I travel with Rick Steves. That's Welsh. Teithia, ever Rick Steves. The Welsh are wonderful people, but they haven't yet learnt to walk on water. 
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and right now that means Mexico City, one of the great cities on this planet, 18 million people, incredible history, and surprisingly lively right now as it is getting things in gear and becoming a great cultural center as well as a great historic center. I've got with me the author of The Moon Handbook to Mexico City, Chris Humphrey. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Mexico City. Wow. It must be incredible. To, I mean, my image of Mexico City is flying in and 18 million people. You just yep. those lights sprawl forever. Have you ever flown in at night? Yes, it's a little, it's a little daunting. Ah, it's, it's just uh, daunting is right. And then you get on the subway system, and it's got this incredible subway system, but I remember it's designed for people who are illiterate, so every station has a pictogram. That's correct. It's got their own symbols, uh, and it's a very well-color-coded system. It's, uh, it's a remarkably easy system to get around. So you don't need to be a good reader to use their public transit? No, not at all. Wow. Now, how, how has Mexico City been changing in the last decade or so? Well, uh, Mexico as a whole has been changing quite a bit. It's been opening up quite a bit more to the world. It was a fairly closed political and economic system for many years. Uh, and with the opening, uh, starting, say, in the 80s, early 90s, uh, it's just a bit more open to external influences. And that, in, in my experience in Mexico City, has meant just an incredible explosion uh, of food in particular, great fusion cuisine from all over the world, mixing with Mexican food. There's some really great Asian-Mexican cuisine mixes. Uh, a lot of international music is coming now that wasn't there so much before. Uh, it's really just become a cultural mecca for, for Latin America in a way that it, that, uh, it always was to a degree, but it's just much more global now. It's a really cosmopolitan place. Would it be overstating it to say it could be the New York of uh, Latin America? Not at all. I can't think of any city that would come close. The only ones would be Rio, right. which is a bit different, and Argentina, which is almost like yeah. Europe. <laughs> but if you're talking Mexico and Central America, yeah, Mexico no, City is the cultural heartbeat of it. You could say, make the case for all of Latin America, but without question for Mexico and now, Central America. Now, a while ago, when tourists went there, they would huddle together in the Zona Rosa, the red zone, because that was the only place you didn't get sick if you ate the food <laughs> and, and you didn't get ripped off and, and, and so on. Actually, you were getting ripped off by paying Zona Rosa prices. <laughs> but it was almost like, what do they call it, the green zone in Baghdad, it felt like, from <laughs> a, a, a overwhelmed and stressed out rich American travelers. Yep. Is the Zona Rosa still that enclave for, West, uh, for rich northern travelers? Well, it's funny. I'm I'm uh, I'm not a huge fan of the Zona Rosa myself, but uh, still, it's listed in all the guidebooks. Not mine so much, but mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people still do go there, and I think they get there and wonder what they're doing there, because there's really not that much. It's uh, you know, it's there's a lot of sleazy sort of topless bars. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a bunch of trinket shops that might be worth looking. There's better places to buy handicrafts than there, but there are some. Is the Zona Rosa? Does that? Have, I mean, is it a red light district? That's not. It right. was originally yes. Back ah, in the 40s that's and 50s, that's why that's it's called it the Zona name. Rosa. I didn't know that. Yep. I was staying in the Zona Rosa. <laughs> and it was a very sort of hip place back in the 50s and 60s. A lot of poets hung out there and all the rest, but uh, those days are long gone. I don't remember don't waste those your days. Time going there. Hey, let's go back even further. Now, what is sure. fascinating to me is way back in the days of Columbus, when, well, ba- basically when Cortez first came to Mexico and discovered Mexico City, <laughs> at, well, when Columbus discovered America, you could say discovered, obviously in quotes, right. arguably the most populated and most sophisticated city on the planet was Mexico City. Absolutely. Tenochtitlan, it was called by the Aztecs. Now tell us about that. Paint a picture of Mexico City on the day that Columbus discovered America. Well, I can, I can paint it a little bit better uh, uh, imagining Cortez coming across the top of the mountains outside the valley, which is how he got there between the two volcanoes, and looking down. And there's chronicles of what they thought, because these were illiterate uh, conquistadors from a remote province in western Spain. They'd never seen anything like this. This was an island city on the middle of a, of a large lake uh, with causeways extending uh, off in four directions out onto the mainland, uh, an incredibly well-organized market system uh, on a neighboring island, a, a sense of order and cleanliness uh, that they had never even believed could exist. Uh, they were blown away. They thought this was something out of, out of the gods. Was it a, a, a sort of a tyranny or a dictatorship, or what, what kind of government did they have? Well, it was certainly a fairly autocratic system, yes. Uh, it was The Aztecs were, were run by a noble class. There was none of this 
uh, upper upward mobility in the Aztec Empire. Right. If you if you were a, a, a lower level worker, I don't think they called them slaves, but if you were a, a worker, you stayed a worker. Stayed uh, a worker. And they were a very bloody bunch. Uh, they fought a lot of wars. They were originally a barbarian tribe from northern Mexico, huh. a latecomer to the Valley of Mexico, actually, which was well settled by the time they got there. Now, I've read that according to the local religion, they were, the Messiah was supposed to come on a certain when the the moon and the sun did this or that, and mm-hmm. just coincidentally, in Cortez's good luck, yeah. uh, he arrived when the Messiah was supposed to come, and they even say in their scriptures the the Messiah would come on a horse, he would be a man with a beard, or, or and then they almost laid down their arms because Cortez was mistaken as the Messiah, and his guys said, hey, this is just too easy, let's have some more gold. Um, what what is the actual story on that? Well, uh, it was Quetzalcoatl was the name, the plume serpent god. Uh, and he didn't go away on a horse, but he did go away to the east, uh, and he was uh, uh, supposedly a, a, a white man with a beard, uh, and he came supposed to come back in 1519, the year that Cortez came back. Wow. Uh, and yes, so that is indeed the truth. However, Moctezuma, who was the emperor at the time, was a bit of a wishy-washy poet. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't much of a warrior, and he was a little more taken by that whole myth than a lot of the other Aztecs were, uh, and they wanted to fight. And Moctezuma didn't, uh, and that somewhat allowed the Spaniards to get in there mighty, maybe easier than they would have originally. But the Aztecs did fight in the end. But the fact Temple, is, the fact is, Cortez arrived, white man, beard, yep. 1519, fulfilling prophecy, giving some people uh, that he was trying to conquer uh, a belief that, hey, this is the Messiah, let's just not fight him. Yeah, I don't know if that was entirely the case, to tell you right. the truth, but, uh, but I think that's something for historians to debate. It's certainly a good story. But since then, uh, pretty much rape and pillage, or what, what was the consequence of the conquistadors? Well, uh, the uh, Cortez actually was trying to be, he was more of an enlightened man than the rest of them, to tell you the truth, certainly more mm-hmm. than Pizarro in, uh, in Peru and, and Ecuador. But uh, in the end, yes, they destroyed the city. He wanted to present it uh, as a crown jewel to the king, but the Aztecs put, picked up uh, picked up their their weapons and started fighting. So they they leveled the city and destroyed it. Uh, and of course, wow. the whole uh, uh, epidemics of disease that came, in fact, preceded them to Mexico. Wow! So they took um, yeah, that. So they, they took this. They took this incredible city, and I'm I'm sure we, it's not good to romanticize it, but it was a sophisticated, well developed city, arguably Absolutely. the most advanced city on the planet. Absolutely. And just devastated it. Correct. And then uh, today, uh, we've still got a lot of uh, the ramifications of all of this. Yes, certainly. Uh, um, it's it's funny because Cortez is still he's still loathed in in Mexico, whereas some of the other conquistadors still have their statues on plazas and what have you. There's no monuments to Cortez anywhere, and they wow. hate the guy. Uh, wow. And in fact, he had he had an interpreter called La Malinche, mm-hmm. who's a woman who uh, has almost become a symbol for treason in Mexico. You just say a malinchista to someone, and that means they're a traitor. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, those feelings still run very deep. Now, the revolutionary spirit of the Mexican people really shows itself in the political murals you will see in Mexico City by Ribera, right? Certainly. Tell us uh, about those murals. I found them very stirring. Yes, indeed. Uh, the, probably the best-known one is the one in the National Palace, which is right on the Zocalo, or the main square. Right. And you go inside, and it's uh, painted all across around a big central stairway, and it covers the history of Mexico, basically. Ah, and it's this wonderful political murals. Uh, I'm talking with Chris Humphrey. He is the author of The Moon Handbook to Mexico City. Now, Chris, my feeling is when you go to Mexico, you want to see the Centro Storico and the great sites there, and then before leaving the the New York of Mexico or, or Central America, you want to visit the National Museum of, what is it, Anthropology? Anthropology and, and history, it's called, yes. Because that, like in so many cultures, all the great artifacts from the many pre-Columbian excavations would be gathered together in the, in the big capital city in the Grand Museum there. Give us some sightseeing tips now on the Centro Historico, the National Museum, and then side-tripping out to places like the pyramids. Sure. In the Centro Historico, you just start at the Zocalo, which is the main square. It's the biggest square in the world, uh, apart from the Red Square in Moscow. Zocalo. Uh, the Zocalo, it's okay. called. Um, it's a long story behind the name. Um, but there, right in front of you is the cathedral, which is it's the biggest cathedral in, in all of the Americas. It's an incredible, incredible structure. Uh, to the right is the National Palace with a mural. Uh, and just set off to the side is the, old, the ruins of the old Templo Mayor, the Aztec Great Temple, 
which wow. uh, they just excavated back in the 1980s. It was buried for centuries. So a pincushion of sites right there in the Centro Storico. All over the place. And very yep. con- convenient and comfortable for tourists. What about yep. the National Museum? The National Museum is over near Chaputepec Park, it's called. It's a little bit west of the center of the city. It's a beautiful park by itself, by the way, worth walking around. Uh, but this is one of the one of the greatest museums, really, anywhere in the world for this uh, for archaeology and anthropology. Uh, it's got 23 big halls, uh, and if you tried to see them all, you would just pass out from exhaustion. Uh, they are massive and just crammed with information. So the nicest way to do it is to really, unless you're a, a dedicated specialist, is to really just walk around, uh, especially the lower floors, which is more the archaeology floors, and hop, hop and skip around uh, and admire different works for, for their artistic beauty rather than trying to learn right. everything. Is it fair to say the best artifacts and, and, and uh, surviving bits of the, the high culture from the pre-Columbian excavations ended up at the big museum in Mexico City rather than in the regional sites? Uh, I would say a lot of the a lot of the great ones did yes, but there are a couple of excellent regional museums. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, no, there's no question that the National Museum has got got some of the greatest. You'll see the huge Olmec heads. Oh yeah, uh, there's massive faces carved out of stone, which was the earliest civilizations in Mesoamerica. Okay, now if somebody's got a short trip from the states heading down to Mexico, they'll spend a few days in Mexico City, and they got a couple days for side trips. What do you recommend for side tripping from Mexico City? Well, you've got to hit Teotihuacan, which is the pyramids just northeast of the city, built around the time of Christ. Nobody really even knows where the civilization came from. It's a big wow. mystery, but it's, uh, it's huge. The Pyramid of the Sun is, is just a massive complex, uh, really a must-see. Can you climb to the top? Can you go to the Certainly, middle? Certainly, yes. It's quite steep, so watch out wow. and come with a hat and sunscreen because it's very hot out there. I remember they, they're so steep, they have a chain, I think, going Yes, up. I think they do on the Pyramid of the Sun, yes. Wow. All and right. you should use it. <laughs> and then from some of the little um, edible delights and so on, uh, juice stands, uh, uh, fun uh, food markets. Uh, yeah, what? no, I mean, Mexico is just a culinary mecca. Oh, yeah. uh, the tacos, everywhere tacos. Uh, tacos al pastor is the tacos that are cut off the little uh, a spit of meat, yeah. uh, a kind of Middle Eastern style. Uh, the juice stands are on every other street corner, it seems. And, oh, you uh, get addicted to juice when you're down there. Oh, I just, I still am, yes. Wake right. up every morning, go outside and get a mix of papaya, orange with beet juice, whatever you want. They can throw it in. Put in some granola, put in some yogurts. Sounds really a great. great way to start the day. All right. Chris Humphrey, author of The Moon Handbook to Mexico City and uh, a number of other guidebooks by Moon. Chris, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate it. Okay, bye now. Ciao. Se llamaba la que vive cual río Tápame con tu rebozo que ya me muero de frío Mariquita se llamaba la que vive junto al río Tápame con tu rebozo que ya me muero de frío Mariquita se llamaba la que vive junto al río Tápame con tu rebozo que ya me muero de frío Mariquita se We're talking about the wonders of the Yucatan Peninsula. Coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And right now I want to take you to the Yucatan Peninsula. I've got on the line Gary Prado Chandler. He's uh, right now in Dominican Republic working on a, another guidebook. And Gary has spent the last 10 years uh, traveling and reporting on Latin America, including El Salvador, Brazil, Dominican Republic, Honduras, and Guatemala. But his favorite place to visit is Mexico. And his uh, area of expertise is the Yucatan Peninsula and Cancun. He's written the Moon Guidebooks to the Yucatan Peninsula and the Moon Handbook to Cancun. Gary, thanks for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. How are things in the Dominican Republic? Oh, they're wonderful. All right. You're working on a, a new guidebook now, uh, actually, on the Dominican Republic. That's right. It's an update for the Lonely Planet Guide to, to the Dominican Republic. Well, right now, I want to learn something about the Yucatan. And uh, for me, this is, uh, you know, Mexico is a huge destination, and people have to make some choices. They can go to Mexico City and side trip to some of the pre-Columbian sites there. Of course, they can do the resorts on the West Coast. Uh, Gary, you know, there's a lot of op- options when people are traveling to Latin America and, and Mexico in particular. Uh, try to talk me into going to the Yucatan. What is it about the Yucatan that uh, stole your heart? Well, the Yucatan has a little bit of everything. You've got, of course, the famous 
white sand beaches and Caribbean seas, but you've also got fascinating and uh, Mayan ruins. You've got fantastic bird watching. Uh, you can explore caves. You can, in fact, you can snorkel and dive in the caves. And the snorkeling and diving is great around the area of Isla Cozumel and uh, Isla Mujeres, which, in fact, are world famous for their diving. All right, so let's talk a little bit about that. First of all, beaches. Cancun is the the big famous resort, and people know about that. My favorite beach was Tulum, just south of Tulum. I stayed in a place called Cabanas Tulum. Uh, I know the one. I just love that. Is that still a good spot? Oh, it is. It's a fantastic spot. You know, it used to be a, a backpacker haven back in the day, and it has kind of grown up a little bit. It's now a, a favorite place for yoga groups, but uh, just about anybody could go there and there's a, a variety of uh, accommodation, you know, options and levels. I'll never and forget the beaches. The si- spectacular. Oh, the, the silhouetted um, palm trees on a moonlit night, the moon shadows, the walking along the beach actually to those uh, dramatic ri- uh, ruins at Tulum, and then hanging out in this funky little cabanas. And then uh, side-tripping in from that, we could go to cenotes. Uh, that was one of the most memorable experiences for me as far as plunging literally into nature. Tell us about the cenotes. It is one of the most unique things to do in the Yucatan. The cenotes are these massive holes in the ground. Some of them are hundreds of feet deep. Some of them, they don't even know how deep they go. They're filled with the most crystalline fresh water that you can imagine. And they're wonderful just for swimming in. And they're even better for snorkeling and, and scuba diving in. Yeah, the visibility, I couldn't believe it. I could see forever in these holes. It's incredible. I mean, you're talking about 300 feet of visibility. Um, so when you're in a cenote, do you actually see wildlife? Uh, there's not very much wildlife in there. There's a few blind fish uh, and a few you know, plants that are growing near the places where the sun shines through. So if you want some sort of uh, marine biology, you'd better off just snorkeling out in the salt water. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the reefs around Isla Cozumel and uh, Isla Mujeres are literally teeming with tropical fish, and of course the coral is uh, famously healthy there. Oh, yeah. That's really the place to see the wildlife. Moonlit beaches all to yourself. Some of the world's best snorkeling, fascinating Mayan ruins, and a world-class resort. More on the wonders of the Yucatan, coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. que me das, que tú me das, fuego el fuego es encender, sientes el ritmo de mi placer, de lado a lado me vas a ver al compás, que tú me das, espérate, no vayas, quédate, otra vez llévame, con tu pasión, ves, en paso se This is Travel with Rick Steves.
877-333-RICK or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. That's how you join in the action on Travel with Rick Steves. We're traveling to the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. I've got with me Gary Prado Chandler, who is the author of a number of guidebooks in the region. He's spent the last decade really delving into the wonders of Latin America, and uh, right now we're talking about his guidebooks, The Moon Handbook to the Yucatan Peninsula and The Moon Handbook to Cancun. Gary, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Gary's in, you're in the Dominican Republic right now, aren't you? Yes, I am. My wife and I, uh, right after we finished in the Mexico books, we jetted off to the Dominican Republic to continue uh, the work where now we're doing a guidebook here uh, to the Dominican Republic. On the Dominican Republic. What That's a right. wonderful beat that must be. Well, let's talk about the, the Yucatan Peninsula and Cancun. And, uh, Gary, you've mentioned Isla Mujeres, the, what is it, the Island of Women. The Island of Women. I went there and thought it was a great alternative to the resorty, uh, you know, ambience of Cancun. Uh, tell us a little bit about the Island of Women, Isla Mujeres. Uh, it's a small little island, about 15 minutes by boat from Cancun. Uh, it's been known as kind of, like you said, an alternative to the resorts in Cancun. It's got a beautiful beach on its northern end uh, called Playa Norte, the North Beach. Uh, it's a very long, thin island, so you can rent a car or a scooter and, and visit uh, uh, Mayan ruins at, the, at one end and some kind of deserted beaches along, along the way. I was intrigued on my visit uh, by the jet-set kind of elite resorts, the exclusive resorts that are just kind of hiding out on the coastline. Absolutely. You know, uh, my wife and co-author Lisa and I were writing just uh, recently a romantic getaway itinerary, a suggested itinerary to readers. And Isla Mujeres is a really fantastic place for that. There are, like you said, some nice little hotels with amazing views over over the Caribbean and you just feel like you're, you've gotten away from it all. It's a, it's a nice place to visit. Hey, we got some callers on the line here. Uh, let's talk to Steve in Louisville, Colorado. Steve, thanks for your call. Thank you. you got a question for Gary. I do. So, um, Gary, as a, uh, as a scuba diver myself, I tend to go to Cozumel quite a bit, but uh, also the Mexican Riviera for some all-inclusive family kind of excursions and a little cenote diving. So my question is, it seems like recently there is such a growth in uh, resorts um, in Cozumel, but especially in the Mexican Riviera, that I find it hard to kind of uh, gather enough information to make good decisions about where to uh, where to go and, um, you know, as for different specialties. Um, do you have any advice on kind of how you uh, sort with all the changes going on, how you sort through the decisions there? But I should ask you, are you thinking specifically about ways to save money or ways to uh, have a good vacation with your kids? You know, I think it, it depends on the trip. You know, occasionally if I'm going on a, a guy's dive trip, it might be more focused on location and so forth. But a lot of times with the family, I'm just looking for a, a really good resort, but, of course, always still trying to be, you know, concerned about a, a good value as well. Sure. Well, I think uh, a few simple strategies that people should, like yourself, and really any traveler can, can uh, use when they go to the Yucatan is, one, travel off-season. You know, don't go during December and January because you can get big crowds and, and <laughs> outrageous prices. Um, go in a time like May or June where you still got great weather, but you're between Easter and summer, so, so you don't have very many either international or, or local travelers. Um, you know, you pay a big premium in the Cancun area to stay on the beach. So one strategy is to stay off the beach, stay inland. And that applies to Cancun. That also applies to Cozumel and Playa del Carmen. Um, the other thing is, you know, with kids and, and trying to save a little money, uh, you can use public transportation. Mexico's got probably one of the best transportation, uh, public transportation systems in, in the Americas, and uh, people don't take advantage of it. It's very simple and cheap, and, um, and I think that's a good way to, to save a little bit of money. Thanks, Steve, for your call. Thank you very much. Yeah, we have Bill on the line in Alabama. Thanks for your call. What's on your mind? My wife and I traveled in the Yucatan for our honeymoon for two weeks, and uh, we went, we left uh, the touristy areas, you know, like flew into Cancun and hopped on a public transportation, the buses, and we backpacked into Valladolid and went out into the jungle to Uxmal. And, and uh, anyway, um, we uh, had this neat experience at the Hotel Uxmal, uh, I think it's the name of it. Uh, we were sitting out out by the pool and a storm came through and it was just pouring rain and the guys from the local village were there to play in the bar that night and uh we sat out there and was talking to them and and they serenaded us and uh 
anyway, the bartender ended up having to come out and, and drag them into the bar away from us because uh, they were they were supposed to be playing the bar instead of instead of uh, entertaining us. So they're just but, hanging um, out with the tourists. So you had your honeymoon in Yucatan. We did. We did. How so was we, that? Tell us if was it a romantic good destination for a honeymoon? Oh, it was great. It was uh it was really a lot of fun. Um I had um studied uh archaeology and art history and uh and uh took my wife around to all the ruins and we we enjoyed it a lot. It was a really amazing place to spend two weeks. What was your favorite pre Columbian site? Oh gosh. Um everybody does Chichen Itza, right? <laughs> we did Chichen Itza and we went on the equinox so we got to see the serpent. Uh, wow. uh, going down the stairs. Now, what do you mean? Explain that. Um, on the the way the the Mayans built the the pyramid, the El Castillo, which is the main pyramid at Chichen Itza, the way they they set it is so that the sun, as it's setting on the vernal equinox in the spring, and then the autumn equinox in the fall, um, it casts a shadow on the stairs for a few days. Huh. It looks like a serpent heading down, and at the base of the balustrade at the stairs, there's a serpent head. It's really a, a pretty neat thing to see. So like Stonehenge, they built it sort of to function as a celestial calendar. Exactly. Gary, is that commonplace with pre-Columbian sites? Yeah, it's you know one of the remarkable things about the Mayans is how advanced they were um, in their mathematics and their astronomy. You know, they calculated the the orbit of Venus, which is some... My, I'm not going to know the exact figure, but it's around 600 days. Uh, they attract, they um, calculated it to within seconds of, of our current, you know, high-tech calculation. Wow. Uh, so these are, and many of their ruins, like, like the color I said, are, are, are oriented in, in ways that were significant to them. All right. So Bill mixed his, uh, his interest in uh, anthropology and archaeology along with nature-loving and a honeymoon. Sounds That's like a right. good place to go, Yucatan. It was great. It was really, really great. We uh, loved uh, drinking Leon Negras and, and eating poke chuk. So. <laughs> now, to explain what those are, I don't know what that is. A Leon Negra, that's a that's a beer. A beer, okay, um, the local beer. Local beer that uh, that I haven't I haven't been able to find anywhere else. So it's, it was a really good beer, and uh, I think poke chuk is the uh, is the pork that's marinated in uh, orange. Sour oranges. This, and I should add to that the, this, the red comes from not just the sour oranges, but from a spice called achiote, which was used by the Mayans. Sounds great. All right. Hey, Bill, thanks for your call. Thank you. You bet. And we're talking with Gary Prado Chandler. He is the author of The Moon Handbook to the Yucatan and The Moon Handbook to Cancun. Americans heading off to Mexico for some fun in the sun. Uh, people on the West Coast, like me, we think of Mazatlan and Puerto Vallarta and, Yuc- and uh, uh, Yucatan. People on the East Coast uh, head on down to Cancun, don't they? Uh, yeah, they do. And it's, the, Cancun is uh, basically your fun in the sun resort. You pay American-style prices for high-rise hotels. You get a private piece of beach. Uh, not much of a, a cultural, intimate experience if you're not careful. Give us some advice on, number one, just enjoying the hedonism in, Yuc- in, in Cancun, and number two, making it a cultural experience as well and uh, jumping off using Cancun as a springboard for, for uh, some uh, Yucatan uh, cultural experiences. Sure, Cancun is justly famous for for its beaches and its uh, nightlife. You know, this is a place where you've got half a dozen clubs all within you know a frisbee throw of each other. Each of them has uh, a party going on from ten o'clock at night to four o'clock in the morning every single day of the week. In fact, they kind of take turns. You know, what Monday will be Daddy O, and Tuesday will be the Bulldog, and and you can ask at your hotel. And in fact, the hotels even form groups together uh, of their guests, and they all go out together in a van, and they get special entrance into these clubs. Uh, they're, they're fantastic. I mean, if that's what you're, if, you, if you've come to Cancun to party, uh, y- you won't be disappointed. So, uh, Gary, this is uh, like a spring break destination, and, and you get this sort of frat party ambience, if you want to call it that. Uh, is, is that. Is that a rising thing in Cancun, uh, it, it, or, or is there a stately aspect of the, of the resort? Well, um, I would say a little bit of both. I think what um, the key to understanding Cancun is that it's more than what you think it is. It is that uh, you know spring break 
crazy party uh, scene, and it's wonderful for the people who who are who are looking for that. It's, it doesn't get much better. So much better, meaning uh, fun people, great sun, great beaches, cheap drinks, that sort of thing. Yeah, I wouldn't go so far to say cheap drinks, but um, <laughs> okay. but it is a place that you can meet a lot of people and have a lot of fun. It's, now, if you, if you want to have more of a more of an intimate, uh, quiet time on the beach, would you recommend uh, a different destination than Cancun? Um, I would, but I, I would I wouldn't uh, overlook Cancun altogether. You know, it's got uh, some six miles of beaches, so you can find plenty of space for yourself um, to uh, set up your towel and read a good book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also got the city itself has got great cultural outlets. It's got one of the best art museum, uh, folk art museums in the country. Is there a bohemian um, kind of alternative, sort of a funky Cancun? Yeah, there really is. You know, <laughs> Cancun is, like most Mexican cities, uh, has a central plaza where tourists almost never go. Um, and this is a sort of place where you can spend the evening eating quesadillas, uh, watching you know, little boys and girls running around in, hmm. in their Sunday best. Uh, speaking of Sundays, they'll have a municipal band will play at the band shell there, and old folks come out and dance dance tone, which is a traditional uh, Caribbean dance. I got an email from Jessica in Portland, Oregon. She said, Yucatan, still my all-time favorite two-week trip, uh, beginning my love affair with colonial Mexico, but she said she'll never go near the likes of Cancun again after discovering a more real Mexico. Uh, That's a really common um, perspective, and I I absolutely understand it. Cancun is is a hard nut to crack. But I think if you read a book like uh, Lisa and Mai's uh, guidebook, what we're really trying to show is that Cancun has a lot to offer, and it's uh, stuff you never would have expected, but it's all right there. And on top of that, Cancun's very centrally located, so, so it's a good if spring you board. want to visit other places in the, in, the, in the area, it's a good place to base yourself. All right. We got Gary on the line from New Jersey. Gary, are you there? Yeah, I'm going to, my, my son just turned 24. I'm planning on a trip for a birthday present for him. And uh, we're going to fly down to Cancun from uh, Philadelphia. Uh, Cancun is the is the main airport there, so that's basically you know our thrust. And we have our uh, 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 hotel there for six or seven nights or so forth. But unlike a lot of people on the East Coast that fly to Cancun for just a spring bake break or the, the the beach and the sun and the fun, I really wanted to get off the beaten track and get to see some pyramids and uh, get over to Chichen Itza and to uh, explore some Mayan ruins and. And also some uh, some small colonial Mexican towns. I thought that would be uh, really a good way to spend a week down there. Uh, Gary, do you have any advice for uh, Gary in New Jersey about where he might uh, go with his son to uh, use Cancun as a springboard to get into the wonders of the interior? I suppose. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, there's there's really two different things. I, I think it's a great idea to spend a few days uh, in Cancun and enjoy the beach and, and the things that the city has to offer. It sounds like you also want to, like you mentioned, see some colonial cities, see some ruins, and your best bet for that is to go to Merida, which is a, a fantastic colonial city about four hours west of Cancun. That's the big city, the dominant city of the peninsula. That is the dominant city, uh, the most important city in, in the area, and it's really a, a wonderful place to visit. It's a, it has a great cultural uh, tradition. Every single night of the week, there's a a free cultural event uh, going on. And it's not just for tourists. It's the locals come out in numbers even more than the, than the visitors do. Um, and it's surrounded, uh, ringed really, by, by great Mayan ruins, uh, including Uxmal and, and, and some of the really famous ones. Gary, could we rely on public transportation to uh, get that far, or would it be in our best interest to, um, to rent a car down there? Absolutely. Mexico has really one of the best Transportation, public transportation systems in the Americas. Um, there are, I would guess, two dozen buses every single day from Cancun directly to Merida. And these aren't, you know, we here in the United States, taking the bus doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. In Mexico, it's a completely different story. You've got great seats, you've got movies, some of them even give you drinks and, and sodas. Um, you can get to Merida. Um, quite easily, check into a hotel, explore the city a little bit. If you want to rent a car at that point um, to explore some of the ruins, that sometimes is a good idea. You can uh, see a little bit more when you've got your own car. But um, for the most part, from getting from place to place, uh, uh, buses are are a good way to to go and a good way to save a little bit of money. Okay, well, I appreciate the information. Thanks for your call, Gary. Thank you very much. Good luck on your trip.
Thanks, thanks, Rick. Now, if we're talking about Cancun, uh, you would go to Cancun. What would you spend for an American-style hotel, uh, just a resort uh, hotel on the beach there? Uh, well, you pay a premium on the beach. So uh, a lot of those places are all-inclusive, uh, which means you know, you've got all your meals and drinks uh, paid for. So you're talking about um, ballpark starting at around $100, $150 per person per night. So you get a resort hotel, all the food and drinks you want, and you got your uh, music in the evening, and it's just one eternal party on the beach for $150 a day per person. That's right. And if you want to use that as a springboard, you can hire a guide and take guided tours into the uh, interior sites and the pre-Columbian sites, or you could rent a car. Are there local guides that hire privately that could drive you around? Um, yeah, you know, but, you know, speaking of the, the dollar figures, uh, I don't know if it, to most listeners, I would say that dollar figure sounds pretty high. Yeah. Cancun, there's a lot of other options. You know, you don't have to stay on the beach and right. do the all-inclusive. You can get a hotel for $30, which is great. A hotel uh, for, can, for how much? For $30 a night. That's great. I've got a couple emails from Judy in Seattle and Aaron in Portland, and they wonder, is it wise to explore ruins off the beaten path? Are there safety concerns, and are women safe driving and birding and exploring ruins on their own? I would say the answer to, to yes, that, that it's perfectly safe, that it's a good place for women travelers to visit. Like any country, including you know the United States, uh, women should probably take a few more precautions uh, if they're traveling alone. Um, there's two, you know, off the beaten path has has a lot of definitions. There's uh, the major ruins, which are great to visit. There are some that are off the beaten path and that they're not visited very often, but they're perfectly set up for tourism. There's mm-hmm. somebody at the gate and they charge you an admission and you go in and there's plaques and things that you visit. The ruins that are completely unexcavated uh, are probably not a good idea to visit. Um, they're also pretty hard to find, so <laughs> it's almost a moot point. Great. It's been great talking to you, Gary. I want to remind our listeners that uh, Gary Prado Chandler and his wife, Lisa, are the co-authors of the Moon Handbook to the Yucatan Peninsula and the Moon Handbook to Cancun. Gary, thanks for your insights. Thanks for having me on the show, Rick. Hoy día luna, día pena. Hoy me levanto sin razón Hoy me levanto y no quiero Hoy día luna, día pena Hoy día luna, día pena Hoy me levanto sin razón Hoy me levanto y no llego A ninguna destinación Arriba la luna, oh Arriba la luna, oh Hoy día luna, día pena Hoy me levanto sin razón Hoy me levanto y no quiero Hoy día luna, día muero Arriba la luna, oh Arriba la luna, oh Arriba la luna, oh Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Our website has more information about this and other programs in the series, including archived audio and podcast extras. It's all on the radio section at ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves.